Hello, and welcome to The World as We Know It, a history and geography podcast where you're invited to an audio tour of each of the world's 197 sovereign states. My name is Brad. And my name is Kiki. And as always, we are your hosts. I thought we were going to say it together, but we didn't, and it's fine. This week, our discussion is on the nation of Lebanon. Lebanon. begin our discussion with some overall thoughts and our initial familiarity ratings before research. That was really well pronounced. Good job. I didn't practice that in the mirror last night. Hey, you don't need to, clearly. Anyway, you go first, <laughs> my initial familiarity rating. Um, I can't I can't say much about Lebanon right now. I'd say I've always had like some like a positive association with it. Can't say why that is. I just feel like, yeah, sure, I think I would go to Lebanon one day. <laughs> If given the opportunity. All right. Um, yep, that's it. That's all I know. I'm going to give myself a one. I'm going to give myself a two. Whoa! I know, I'm bold. Only because I had a friend in middle school who was from Lebanon, and I knew that the tree on the flag was a cedar tree. You did know that. We talked about this the other day, and I'm like, uh, that's probably not a cedar tree, idiot. But it was. And it totally was when we looked it up. So interesting tidbits get me plus one. So two. Yeah, that I think that counts. I could probably find it on a map beforehand, but yeah. All right. So why don't I give a snapshot of the country? I would sure like that. (laughs) That's me taking control. All right. Lebanon is a state in Western Asia. It is actually the smallest country in mainland Asia. Did you know that? Maybe you did because you did research. I definitely had read this article before. Keep going. And it's located on the Mediterranean. um, So Syria is to the north. Israel is to the south. Um, and across the Mediterranean Sea, you'll find the island nation of Cyprus. Can't wait to get to that country. It's going to be an interesting one. Um, and it's, uh, so it's 4,036 square miles. So that's not very big at all. Uh, other things about Lebanon. Uh, capital is Beirut. And it's the largest city as well. Yep. Uh, people from Lebanon, the demonym is Lebanese. They speak Arabic and French there. We'll figure out why they speak in French later, I'm sure. Hint, hint, the French are involved. I'm going to guess that the French may have been involved there. Spoilers. Le, le Lebanon. <laughs> uh, anyway, the government is a unitary parliamentary multi-confessionalist republic. Oh, sh- Don't shit. Know what that means. That's a new word, confessionalist. We're going to learn about that. Yep. And sectarianism. In what sectarianism? We can learn about that. In sectarianism? No, it's like when you just were... sectarianism. Oh, okay. They are not ruled by beetles. <laughs> Sorry, folks. <laughs> it's like a nightmare country. <laughs> the government is just bugs. <laughs> All right, the uh, president, who is a human and not a bug, is Michel Aoun. Rumored. Uh, and the prime minister is Saad Hariri. Um... And think about there's like a lot of establishment dates for Le- for Lebanon too, and I think we're gonna get into that in the very storied history. So we're not gonna talk we about will, that yeah. at all. Population of about six million six hundred, wait six million six thousand six hundred sixty eight. Um, so it's the one hundred and twelfth most populated country in the world, uh, and they have the eighty eighth GDP. 
and they use the Lebanese pound. And uh, I, I think that's about the things that we talked yeah. about on the snapshot, right? It's a good snapshot. Yeah. Um, I don't, we didn't get into well. It's actually good you didn't get into any like what's the religious makeup. Oh, you're right. You're that's right, right, really right. complicated, and we'll talk about it. We'll talk about that. Um, uh, full disclosure, guys. It was the first week of school, and I am unprepared. So yeah, we've been we've been in a th- in the throes of studying. Yeah, I'm definitely one thousand percent dedicated to my studies right now, uh, and I haven't been drowning my problems in various substances. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Good to hear. It doesn't matter how much alcohol I'm drinking. What matters is Lebanon. So why don't you, Brad, take us back into antiquity? Well, I think her Lebanon does matter. Let me pull up my my PowerPoint. Here we go. So the history of Lebanon. Um, so a little disclaimer. Oh, um, I can say this. Brad isn't going to read purely narrative snippets from Wikipedia today. Instead, he will try to condense the epic. Epic is is surrounded by tilde marks, so you know it's emphasized. Yeah. History of Lebanon into digestible sections. I'm saying this for him so that he didn't have to talk in the third person. Yeah, I kind of did that. That's kind of strange. Okay. Did you want to do that yourself? I'm sorry if I took away. No, so I'm, I'm going to try, because I mean, you're paying good money. You guys want a good product. Yeah, definitely. Um, <laughs> I'm going to try not to just read purely from, like, sentences from historians and little, like, from articles. I'm going to try to, like, condense stuff and have a more natural feel to it. So it's really cool that you're finally trying on this podcast. Fifteen is is you know fifteen tries and you're out. That's baseball, yeah. right? That's yeah. what Thomas Edison said. He did. Um, he's not Lebanese though, so no, <laughs> so it doesn't matter. <laughs> so there are five eras that I'm going to break it down into of Lebanese history. You have ancient history from 2500 BC um, to 332 BC. You have the classical age from 332 BC to 628 AD. You have the medieval slash middle age period from 628 AD to 1917. They have a very long middle age period because it incorporates Ottoman rule into that. And then you have a very odd colonial period from 1917 to 1943. That's where the French come in. Oh, I would believe it. Cue accordion music. And then you have the Republic of Lebanon, that's its modern history as it's the country it is, 1943 onward. So we're going to start ancient history as we are like to do. Uh, we're not going to get into prehistoric history or like all the stuff they're in because there's prehistoric artifacts dating to like 45,000 years ago or earlier. There's upper Paleo- Paleolithic records, um, but that's for our other podcast, The World as We Used to Know It. Uh, <laughs> that's a good one. I didn't write that joke down. I can't down. wait to start that. <laughs> um, okay, so, um, and there are earlier human cultures in this area, like the Canaanites, and that's like the second Yeah, I know them from the Bible. Yeah, they get tons of biblical references. Um, so this, that, this is that area. And it's gonna, this is our first mention of, if you get biblical references, the duality of like Christianity and other Abrahamic religions is going to be huge in right Lebanon. Um, so the coastal plain of Lebanon is the historic home of like some coastal trading c- cities of like these these days of yore, um, especially like Semitic culture. Um, the Greeks termed these cultures like Phoenicia. This is where the Phoenician Empire was um, was centered. They're a very maritime culture. They were around for a thousand years. In fact, lots of old ruins and old cities in the Bible and stuff like like Byblos, Beritus, which is where Beirut, where Beirut comes from. Beirut, sorry, yeah. Beirut. Um, places like Sarafan and Tyre or Tyre. Those were urban centers in the ancient world. I've heard of all of those places, which is kind of crazy. You have? Yeah. Snap. I'm also a genius. Get that FR rating up, girl. Um, so it's um, these people, they roamed the Mediterranean seas. They had the really... really um, disparate and like lengthy 
uh, trading networks on the coast of northern Africa and like the Iberian Peninsula and stuff like that. Um, they had colonies overseas. Uh, the ancient Phoenicians, they had like Cadiz, that's in Spain, and Carthage, which is in Tunisia. Those are big names, you should know those. Um, and then during this time, Phoenicia had uneasy relationships with like the, the, pre the prelude to the Assyrians and the Babylonians, um, and that's all early BC history. All right, gets into the classical age. So after the decline of the Phoenician city-states, um, they were conquered outright right by right <laughs> by uh, Achaemenid, um, uh, by the Achaemenid Persian Empire under Cyrus the Great. Hey, we remember him. We do, um, and he or organized it into a, satra a satrapy or a satrapy, which just means province. Um, but I mean, there were some independent states within the Phoenician colonies. Like Carthage remained independent for a while. Um, and Carthage remained, you know, powerful to like the Second Punic War. But the most important next thing that happened is after two centuries of Persian rule, um, Alexander the Great came. We've also heard about him. He's, yeah, A the G. A the G. He's pretty great. Um, he had a war against Persia. He attacked and burned Tyre or Tyre. I don't know how to pronounce it correctly. Forgive me. Um, that was the most prominent Phoenician city at the time, and he conquered this was what is now Lebanon. He conquered that entire region, uh, and that's in 1332. So that's what that earlier year signified. Um, and then after his death, the region was absorbed into another empire called the Seleucid period. Um, which we is know that from our Afghanistan and Tajikistan episodes. You remember that far back? That's I'm a genius. I already told you several times. God. Bask in her glow right now. Okay. So, Sorry, I keep interrupting. I'm just excited about this. No, it's, it's good. Um, this is our witty banter. So in the classical age, you have the introduction of Christianity. Uh, and that's around the first century AD um, because of Christ. Yeah. And so Christianity was introduced from neighboring Galilee. Well, that's I know from that Bible. from the Bible. Yep. Excuse me. And um, this region, as much as like a lot of Syria and Anatolia, became a major center of Christianity. Um, in the fourth century, it was in part of the Byzantine Empire, and then Mount Lebanon and its coastal plain became part of the Diocese of the East. Um, which, I mean, this is a really big part of the early Christian, Christian like, growth and, like, gained some prominence. Um, so here, here's a, a very, very important anecdote that will come to fuel a lot of tensions in the modern era. So during the late 4th and 5th centuries, a hermit named Maron, M-A-R-O-N, established a monastic tradition focused on the importance of monotheism and asceticism near the mountain range of Mount Lebanon. Um, so the monks who followed Maron spread his teachings among the native Lebanese Christians and the remaining pagans in the mountains on the, in these coasts of Lebanon. These Lebanese Christians came to be known as Maronites, and they moved into the mountains to avoid religious persecution by Roman authorities. And during the frequent Roman-Persian wars that lasted here for many centuries, um, you have like the Sassanid Persians who occupied what is now Lebanon. But these Maronites, this Maronite sect of religion, culture, the fact that they're in the mountains and they're a minority is going to be really, really prominent in Lebanon up until the present day. And this starts in the 5th century. All right. So keep that in mind for later, folks. All right. And this gets us into the medieval slash middle age period um, with, uh, with we have an Arab rule come out. And there's a term here, um, uh, Balad al-Sham. And this refers to the um, uh, this, like, this area slash caliphate basically what they refer to uh, as the Levant this is like the Arab term for the Levant is like for that province a little complicated um, and so Muslim Arabs conquered this area coming 
you know, mainly they conquered Syria. This also included this area in the seventh century after the death of Muhammad, and they were establishing a new regime that was going to replace the power vacuum left by the Romans and the Byzantines. Um, you know, Islam and the Arabic language became really dominant during this rule. However, that Marianite community still really clung to its faith, and they had a lot of autonomy in the mountains, mountainous areas. Um, and of course, uh, you have another term for this Bilad al-Sham is like the uh, Umayyad, the Umayyad. So, yeah, um, yeah. And their capital was at Damascus, so that, that whole like city-state kind of thing incorporated this area um, for Lebanon. And then here's the second big um, precursor to modern-day faith and religious sect tensions. During the 11th century, the Druze or the Druze faith emerged, and that was that's a branch of Islam. And this new faith gained followers in the s southern portion of Lebanon. Uh, and the, the Marianites and the Druze divided Lebanon basically until the modern era, and they're still present there today. Um, and then you, you can, as part of this, you have like some major cities like Acre or Akhri um, in Beirut. Those were directly administered by the Muslim caliphs. Um, and so those became more like part of the Arabic culture where you have like the holdouts of the Marianites in the north and along the west. And so this will be worth a lot of attention going forward. Um, so in the Middle Ages, we have this kind of like isolated bubble of time in which the Crusades came down. Hey, I feel like the Crusades should get its own theme. What would the, what would the musical theme be? I don't know. Let me think about it. All right. Kiki's and then we'll edit it in afterwards. <laughs> Kiki's on the case. Um, so look, the Romans and the Christians left Anatolia, and the Muslim Turks gained power. That's when the Romans put out a call to the Pope, and he's like, 11th century, we need to retake the Holy Land. That whole story with the Crusades. Um, it was a series of wars. There was like three or four Crusades. These were launched by Latin Christians. And um, this, this is important because many of the Latin Christians who came to fight the Crusades in Lebanon were of French origin. So this is the first time that the Frankish nobles and the Frankish, the French people became involved in Lebanon and thought of this territory as something as part of their history. That'll pay off in the early 20th century. Um, what else do I hear about the First Crusades? Um, it, Lebanon was directly in the path of the First Crusades advance on Jerusalem. Um, the northern half of the country at that point was the county of Tripoli. Um, and, you know, Saladin the Great, uh, he eliminated Christian control of the Holy Land, land around 1190. Um, but there were actual crusader states in Lebanon and Syria that were better defended and didn't fall to Saladin or Saladin. Um, and one of the most lasting effects of the crusades in this region was the contact between these crusaders who were French and the Maronites. So those contacts are going to pay off a lot later in history. Because you have these Christian communities, and they swore allegiance to like Constantinople or other local patriarchs, but the Marianites themselves were holdouts, and they proclaimed allegiance to the Pope in Rome. So you're going to have that duality of religion and autonomy and who they think is you know, in charge going on. So this gets, this gets into the precursors for Ottoman rule and the Ottoman Turks, and this is uh, referred to as like the Mamluk Sultans, M-A-M-L-U-K. Um, so the Muslim parts of, con of controlled Lebanon, they were reestablished in the late 13th century after the Crusader empires fell. Um, and those, that power came from the Mamluk sultans of Egypt. And they came over and established, reestablished Muslim rule. And this is later um, uh, acquiesced. Acquiesced means give way to, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah right. To, to the Turkish Ottoman Empire as they solidified authority over the eastern Mediterranean. And so, talking this 13th century, kind of almost onward to like the late 1900s, the early 1900s, you had the Ottoman Turks forming this empire. Um, 
You have the Ottoman Sultan uh, Selim the First. That was from 1516 to 20. Um, he he's the one who actually conquered conquered the Mamluks, brought in Ottoman rule. Um, I have some some uh, some notes here about that Mamluk Ottoman um, fighting, um, and basically what it establishes is that there are, there are feudal families in the Ottoman Empire, um, but there was all there's always these factions of local like Druze or Druze like adherents to the Muslim faith, and they never go away. So they're always going to have a little autonomy. So Ottoman rule. You have, um, I guess, a dynasty or a family called the, the Mons. M, it's like man with an extra A in the middle. And they kind of empowered from 1120 to 1697. And they came to Lebanon from Yemen sometime in the 11th or 12th centuries. Um, they were Katani Arabs. Katani, I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, and that they, when they came to Lebanon, they adopted the Druze religion, which gave a lot of um, precedent to that religion as far as like ruling. Um, and then at this time, uh, just a uh, little anecdotes here. Uh, one of the most important um, figures of this time period is... Uh, uh, Good luck with that one. Yeah. I think it's uh, Fakir Ad-Din II. Doesn't look like Fakir. Okay. Um, but no, but it, I'm sure you're right. Yeah. But just looking at it and me saying it to myself, it's it's a lot funnier than that. So whatever you want to pronounce his name, everyone slices uh, who he actually is. He was kind of one of these like myth, one of these historical figures, almost mythological nowadays because of his prominence and like forming the mo- not the modern day boundaries of Lebanon, but like what would become the modern day boundaries of Lebanon. Um, in fact, his predecessor uh, Fakir Ad Din the first, like historians can't even agree if like he existed or not. Um, so there's like, this weird like history of where he where, where this this second guy came from. If he was a son, like where he gained his power, um, but he's prominent to notice, and that's in the early 17th century. Um, but the next big um, no- thing of note is the the Shihabs, the Shihab dynasty or family, uh, and they're in power from 1697 to 1842. Um, and their big uh, call to fame, I guess, in the annals of history is that um, Amir or uh, like ruler king Bashir the um, second, he was in charge when Napoleon came, and hey. he remained neutral when Napoleon uh, sieged the town of Akir or Acre, and because of this neutrality, he gained a lot of prominence in the area as far as like n- nearly near like nearby tribes and people would kind of like kind of defer to him because he had remained stalwart and hadn't given in to the conquerors of the west. Oh, cool. Um, and so he's a very big prominent figure. Um, and this also starts, though, uh, like European intervention slash meddling. Um, Classic Europeans. Yeah. So, Can't I mean, keep their grubby mitts out of it. So for a lot of reasons, it's hard to go into because of, like, it involves tax collection and famine and, like, interfeudal conflict. Like, it was really difficult to even read, much less summarize. There was just internal conflict. And this grew to open rebellion. Bashir II had to flee. And there was... Um, this is the you know, 1840s, 1860s, this time period. You know, there was open conflict between the impoverished Druze, the impoverished Druze people, and the Maronite Christians. Um, you know, the Druze, the Druze people. That there was a massacre of Christians, um, and then there was like and there, there were survivors who fled that massacre, and they were slaughtered by the Ottoman, the Ottoman Empire's like regular militia. And the Ottomans, Ottomans at this time, they attempted to create peace. Uh, by dividing Mount Lebanon itself into a Christian district and a Druze district, 
but this mainly gave like each of them like a home base to like wage more civil conflict that gave them like geographic mm. like boundaries uh, and this uh, this went into like full sectarian war which is like and the sectarian comes up as a political thing later on so it just basically just means like sectarian is like feudalist it's divisions of the sects the sects of religions in 1860 <laughs> there was full scale sectarian war Ha, it sounds like sex. Isn't that funny, Kiki? Ha, ha, ha. Um, uh, and the Maronites of this... Okay, it's not that funny. I'm laughing because you were laughing. Eat your milk duds. Um, so Maronites began, began to openly oppose the power of the Ottoman Empire. And they got and they got um, destabilizing support from this from France, which gave them a lot of power uh, from abroad. And the Druze people, in turn, were backed by the British... Um, so that exacerbated not only economic tensions and religious tensions, but international tensions, because the two communities had, like, international backers now. But eventually the Maronites, because they had fewer people, I suppose, were pushed back into a few strongholds, and they are about to be defeated when the concert of Europe happened, you know, when they reached all the borders yeah, in the yeah. Middle East. Yeah. yeah. So that intervened, and there was a commission established to determine, like, what was going to be the outcome of all this infighting. Um... And then the French forces that were already there, they helped to enforce the decision of the Concert of Europe. So neither of the actual Druze or Marionites people got a say. They just got it enforced upon them. Seems like a total European intervention move. It is something they would do. Um, so the Marionites, they were reduced to a semi-autonomous region around Mount Lebanon in the, north, the northwest. Um, the Druze already had their established parts of the south, and they had direct control over Beirut. And um, there were different provinces that were controlled by either, um, but they were still carefully watched by the Ottoman Empire. The governor of Damascus, Damascus at that time had like political authority over them. It's very complicated how this whole thing was set up. Um, okay, so this gets us into like the Ottoman Empire before World War One. And we know that it's uh, probably going to be pretty important. Yep. So their last hurrah. The remainder of the 19th century, it was relatively stable. You had the Druze and the Marionite groups. They were focused on internal economic and cultural development. This time you had the um, the American University of Beirut, which is the highest-ranked and nicest university in Lebanon, even today. Oh, wow. Um, that was founded this this time. You even had some like, political and literary activity to liberalize the Ottoman Empire. In fact, there's a famous poet, Khalil Gibran, I feel I've heard of that. Apparently, apparently, he's the third best-selling poet in the history of the world, but behind Shakespeare and Lao Tzu. That's very cool. And he's Lebanese, and I think at this time or a little bit after it, he was writing his poetry. His big work is *The Prophet*, came out in 1923. That's his seminal work. Um, yeah, I'm so, adding that to my two read. So he's active at this point. Khalil Gibran's in the house. Gibran, Khalil. So, after that um, brief aside about um, a literary figure, I know that would interest you, Kiki. Um, so, in the approach to World War I, uh, Beirut, became, Beirut became a center of uh, various reforming movements. Um, they, had, they sent delegates to the Arab-Syrian Conference and the Franco-Syrian Conference. Those, those were in Paris. They were looking for um, solutions to, like, pan-Arab nationalism, like separatism for Beirut as like a city-state, looking for anything to like qualm tensions here, because uh, there were growing tensions within the Ottoman Empire. Um, uh, and Lebanon was to feel the weight of this co of the conflicts here um, in the Middle East, more heavily than the other areas in Syria because of like 
their religious problems, not problems, but their factions. Yeah, the religious tensions. Their sectarianism. And, Ooh, yeah. that's the word, Brad. Sectarianism. And okay, so here's the neat little thing. So World War One happens, and after that, the League of Nations. And here's a little thing for Kiki. It's the it's basically the French flag. With oh, this, I kind of like that. It's the French flag with the cypress tree of Lebanon right in the middle of it. The cedar tree, yeah. Cedar tree. God um, damn it. Yeah, so following the collapse of the Ottoman Empire after World War One, sorry about going to get into the wars, folks. That's a lot to cover there. Um, the League of Le- League of Na- almost. Said I feel League like we need to do like a special episode for World War One and World War Two. I'm not a huge war history guy, but there's so much there that and affects so much. There's also so like much. a thousand other podcasts that are true, like hardcore history and stuff like that. Okay, so the League of Nations mandated that. The five provinces that make up present-day Lebanon, and they gave direct control of France. Um, direct control of what? They gave the direct control of these present-day provinces to France. Um, you know, that's, you know, France, yeah, um... As well as some, a few other territories that were along the borders of these provinces that weren't presently, previously part of Lebanon. Um, so the demographics, because of this, of Lebanon were profoundly altered. The added territories contained people who were predominantly Muslim or Druze, and then the Lebanese Christians now became even more of a minor- minority. Um, and then, like Sunni Muslims in Lebanon, saw their numbers increase eightfold. And Shiite Muslims increased fourfold, so there was even more diversity now. Um, I don't know if we touched on this in the snapshot, but Lebanon is the most religiously diverse country in the Middle East. We didn't talk about that in the snapshot. That is very interesting. Yeah, so they have, um, whereas most of the Middle Eastern countries either have like a like a 90-10 split Christian yeah. or like one or the other, or like Muslim. There's a very clear majority religion in places. Yeah. This, uh, I think Lebanon today, I don't think any faction has more than, like, 15% between the different sects and stuff. So it's it's very diverse. Um, And so modern Lebanon's constitution, um, drawn up in, in, at this time, their modern constitution, drawn up in 1926, it specified a balance of power between these various religious groups. And France designed it uh, to guarantee the political dominance of its Christian allies. That didn't cause any problems, I'm sure. Um, Some interesting things like the president was required to be a Christian, therefore like a Maronite. Mm-hmm. The prime minister like was supposed to be a Sunni Muslim. So like, but like yeah. having like almost like theocratic leaders in that way. Oh, Why yeah, would France like, do that as to... a colonial power? It just rubs me the wrong way. We also know that like France um, is culturally very Catholic, if not like um, like politically. Yeah. It's like modern France is very like politically neutral but there's yes. a lot of cultural France and like even like I don't know my sister studied abroad in France I grew up Catholic we talked about this a lot where they, people are basically non-religious but the cultural parts of Catholicism are very prevalent so when they're colonizing or when they're spreading their influence over a country it is interesting that they would they would implement this while still making some considerations for other faiths I mean because they're not trying to they, they, they're they not were... trying to mission not mission, missionary them into. They must have known in the long run this wasn't going to work out somehow. Yeah. Um, because it didn't. So World War II happened. Hey. Um, I'm not going to talk about the war that much again, but so during the war, though, because France had problems during World War II, as we know. Oh, did it? Uh, um, the Vichy government was the one that assumed power over the French territory. Uh, in 1940, um, General Henri Ferdinand Dinst was, appo- was appointed as High Commissioner of Lebanon. Um there's a lot of uh, nitty-gritty uh, stuff here. Let's see. Um, 
later on in the war, Vichy authorities allowed Nazi Germany to move aircraft and supplies through Syria to Iraq. And then you know, Lebanon at this point was in a, a really strategic position. So Britain, I think, actually invaded. And they had forces there during the war. Try to gain power and kind of stop those supply routes. So after the fighting ended later, um, General Charles de Gaulle visited the area. There's an airport named after him in Paris. Charles de Gaulle? Yeah. In Paris? Yeah, but they don't call it that. Mm. Is he you famous look... there, I guess? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe he might be. <laughs> um, so, um, and because he visited there and he was under various political uh, pressures from inside and outside, um, uh, de Gaulle decided to recognize the independence of Lebanon. And so on December 26, 1941, General uh, Georges Catra. I think it's a Georgia. Georgia Catra. Georgia Catra. Um, he announced that Lebanon would become independent under the authority of the free French government. Um, here's some interesting stuff here. The elections were actually held in 1943. And on November 8th, 1943, the new Lebanese government, um, they abolished the mandate um, for independence. And then the, the French threw the new government into prison. And then in the, in the face of international pressure, uh, pressure, the French then released the government officials and um, they accepted the independence of Lebanon. So nice. France tried to stop the independence, um, but on November the 22nd, 1943, I believe that's their official independence date. They let it happen. They, they, they gave They're in. Like, uh, we've got some other problems other than what Lebanon is doing. You know, cut the dead way they live. Yeah. France needs to focus on, on staying at home. Yeah. Um, so here's a, a next, next cool little flag thing I have here. The original doodle they made of the flag in the parliament. I... Love it. And it's so cute. <laughs> it's a really good flag. Um, this is flag corner. It's it's like pre-flag corner. Yeah. But like it looks like something I maybe would have done in like high school. Um, or if I'm if I'm gonna doodle the flag of Lebanon just in my notes or whatever, that's what it looks like. Uh, yeah, there's little notes in Arabic yeah, I'm guessing a... for like how big the tree should be. This is a cedar tree. There's like like the the lines aren't even like drawn straight and they're colored yeah, in wrong. Yeah, they're like colored in like um like scribbled in. So like yeah. yeah, you got the idea of what it's supposed to look like. Everyone can be chill about it. I, it's gonna be better than this when it gets the real thing. This is just what middle aged men would doodle for a flag in it's, Parliament. It, and one thousand percent is. I can totally see them being like, guys, it's it's gonna be like this, but like like picture this this way. <laughs> but much better. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, get a professional to do the real thing. So this no yeah it's this November nineteen forty three date with their n nice little flag. Uh, this is when the Republic of Lebanon comes into its own as a sovereign nation. Um, and then... Good for them. Good, good for them. them. Good <laughs> for them. them. Okay, okay throughout. please continue. Three chants. Um, so now we're getting to the modern era, our last era, because um, we're not past the modern era, because that's today. Yeah. Um, so I have here, Lebanon's history since independence has been marked by alternating periods of political stability and then just utter turmoil. There's a lot of prosperity. Story of my life. Yeah. Uh, Boggy Peak talking here. So <laughs> there's a lot of prosperity built on Beirut's position as like this really big like regional trading center, especially for finance and banking. Um, like in, in international commerce too. And it became like the Paris of the Middle East. Uh, and you know, so you had like this, this big, this like prime city becoming notable. But then like turmoil happens. There's like a Lebanese civil war. I think all of our countries have had a civil war. Yeah, at one point or another. Uh, and, uh, Antigua and Barbuda didn't really civil war. They had more of a no more colonists, please. And they the were, colonists were like, okay, bye bye. Civil war and or colonial against yeah, colonial yeah. rebellion. And everyone's had like a big war. Um, Lebanon was going to have one of those. We'll get to that. 
Alright, so at this slide I have marked Growing Pains. I'm just going to hit the big stuff of the 20th century. Obviously we can't go in infinite depth because there's a lot of more, lot more history, a lot more recorded stuff yeah. we talked about. Here's the big points. So. In 1948, there was an Arab-Israeli war, which was new to me, news to me. I had to read about, read about that, but we're not going to get into that because the main point that involves Lebanon is that at this point, after that war, they became home to more than 100, 110,000 Palestinian refugees. A lot of refugees and a lot of new culture and religion coming in. Exactly. And with those refugees comes people who set down roots, and people set down roots, especially involving Palestine. That's going to get into tensions with Israel in the modern era. Yep. So remember that. And then uh, fast forward a little bit, a decade, 1958. This was the last months of President Ben Camille Chamon's term. Good one. Um, there was an interaction that broke out. And then the United States Marines were sent in, 5,000 of them. They were just dispatched directly to Beirut on July 15th, 1958, because um, the government appealed to the United States for, for, for help. Um, and then after this crisis, um, a new, whole, totally new government was formed led by a then-popular general, uh, Fuad Shahab. So you had, like, a complete redo of the government because, like, kind of a military rule came in. Uh, and that actually led to some stability. So during the 1960s, Lebanon enjoyed a period of relative calm. You had Beirut, of course, as that tourism and banking center. Um, they had mild economic success. Uh, they were seen as a bastion of economic strength um, by kind of a compliment from the Persian Gulf Arab state. They were very oil-rich. Um, uh, their investments into the commercial and financial structures of Lebanon made it one of the world's fastest growing economies in the 1960s. Um, however, one of their major banks, the Youssef Baidas Intrabank, I, uh, I never heard of it before. That sounds um, good enough. Th there, was a, there, was a, there was a financial collapse, um, and then they went to recession in 1966. Um, and this leads us into um, a recession, and then bubbling under the surface with that kind of discontent um, comes the Lebanese Civil War. And this was a multifaceted civil war in Lebanon that lasted from 17, no, sorry, 1975 to 1990. That's a really a very, long time. It's a really long civil war. Um, there's an estimated uh, 120 fatalities. A lot of fatalities. Yeah. And as of, and this also leads to a huge thing that's like the, Leban, the Lebanese diaspora. So a lot of people fled Lebanon and they're around the world now. Um, which is a big, big part of Lebanese culture is now like there's people all around the world. They send money back. Yeah. Um, kind of stuff like that. So as of today, there's like 76,000 people displaced within Lebanon and much more abroad. Um, yeah, and there's an exodus of like a million people out of Lebanon. Um, so all in all, there's like, like I said, that 100,000 plus fatalities, uh, rumored people that were killed. Another 100,000 were handicapped by injuries. Um, because there was like strategic like uh, landmine placements and stuff, it was a really big problem during mm -hmm. the Civil War. Um, yeah, thousands of people lost limbs. It's still a problem they go through. Um, so yeah, so the major fighting happened between the Marionite and the Palestinian forces, um, and those Palestinian forces were from the PLO. We can save that for Palestine or Israel episode. And then um, there are other other groups like the leftists, uh, the Pan Arabists, the Muslim Lebanese. Um, they formed alliance with the Palestinians, and there was lots of fighting. Foreign powers got involved, like Israel and Syria. Um, and then the peacekeeping forces came in. There was a multinational force in Lebanon and from the United Nations. Um, so yeah, all these forces, all this fighting, no wonder it took 16-plus years to resolve. Um, but finally, in trying to resolve it in 1989, there was the 
Taif Agreement. Um, and that was uh, kind of by a committee appointed by the Arab League. They were trying to find solutions to the conflict, see you know if they could grant amnesty to certain people who should be pardoned, should people be held for like war crimes and stuff, what's going on. Um, so in May 1991, after all that committee resolutions, all that kind of stuff, militias were dissolved, except for Hezbollah, which was still active and very politically important at this time. And then the Lebanese armed forces began to rebuild as the, um, and the Lebanese armed forces were created at this time like the only major non-sectarian institution. If you have people from all the other sects in the Lebanese armed forces, you're going to maybe stop some conflict, that's Mm -hmm. what they hoped. Of course, there were still tensions between Sunnis and Shias, as there's going to be in the Middle East. Of course. Yeah. Um, so Lebanese Civil War, this is probably the, probably the biggest event, most seminal event of the 20th century for Lebanon. Um, and then I have here, there's an occupation. Basically, like, the military forces didn't leave, so they're occupied, quote-unquote, from 1992 to February 2005. Uh, this is very complicated. I have a note here, so let me kind of just... Um, reorient myself you have that Lebanese armed forces um, and since the militias that did the fighting were very sectarian they were disbanded or weakened so the LAF the armed forces of Lebanon were created and they were trying to have central government authority Um, Hezbollah retained its weapons and it was actually supported by the Lebanese parliament in doing so because they had defended against Israeli occupations they had like some political capital there uh, Syria at this time had a lot of military presence still there. Um, uh, Israeli forces finally withdrew in May 2000, um, but Syria still remained. And up until 2005, Syria still remained with like 15,000 troops. Um, there was a whole. There had to be a lot of um, like slow withdrawal and like pullback of forces, mm-hmm. similar to like what America tried to do with Afghanistan, really. I mean, but at a smaller scale. Um, Speaking of the devil, the U.S. began applying pressure on Syria to end its, end its occupation there. Um, and actually, they, I mean, the U.S. told Syria to stop interfering with internal Lebanese matters. Um, so they finally withdrew in 2005, which is pretty much modern. That's really modern history. Yeah, that's... I remember... I, rem- that, I was a live and yeah, thinking um, person then. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I remember none of this because it was very overshadowed in my youth by, like, America's own conflicts. But yeah. This was, I mean, this is very pertinent modern history about... I was in seventh grade. A very, yeah, very um, controversial area, part of the world. Um, so, as if that wasn't enough, directly after this, there's a two-month rebellion called the Cedar Revolution. Uh, and this, this is cool. So it's February 14th to April 27th, 2005. It was a chain of demonstrations in Lebanon, mainly in Beirut, after the assassination of the former Prime Minister, Rafiq Hariri. Or Hariri, yeah. Um, and it was a popular movement that was, I mean, it's noted for, like, they avoided violence, a lot of, like, civil disobedience, civil resistance, like, peaceful approach. Um, the opposition, they'd, like, they, they would wave, like, this white and red colored scarf, and, like, their symbol was, like, the blue ribbon. And their popular motto was, Hureya uh, Sededa Estikle, which means freedom, sovereignty, independence. That's nice. Um, Similar to other. So this this models. reminded me of this reminds me kind of like the student protests in Bangladesh, kind of more of like a popular revolution against um, against the corruption, not because of it or to to, to further it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So these activists they wanted the the, the continued withdrawal of Syrian troops. Um, they wanted a, a government that wasn't controlled by the Syrian interests. They wanted their own government. 
They wanted to inve investigate the assassination. They wanted basically, you know, freedom, sovereignty, and independence. And they called for it. And they got it. Hey! Um, so this leads to another war, unfortunately. You have the 2006 Lebanon War. It's not as bad as 16 years. It only lasts 34 days. That's not it, as bad as 16 years at all. By a long shot. In fact, other names for this conflict include the, uh, the Israel-Hezbollah War um, or the July War. And it is only 34 days long, and it's a military conflict conflict that took place in Lebanon, northern Israel, and the Golan Heights. I don't know where Golan Heights is, but I've heard it before on the um, news. I'm pretty sure that's a region in Zelda Twilight Princess, but... That's the Goron Heights. Oh. Okay. Um, so the, the principal parties involved in the conflict were the Hezbollah forces and the Israeli Defense Forces, the IDF. Uh, the conflict started in early July 2006. Um, and it continued until United Nations broke out a ceasefire, um, and then you know Israel lifted like a naval blockade they had going on. Um, There's also like unprecedented Iranian military support to Hezbollah, you know, before the war, during the war. Um, people considered this like the first round of the Iran-Israel like proxy Cold War conflict going on there. Um, so very complicated. I mean, re regional tensions are. I would say bolstered rather than fixed by the ceasefire here. Um, a little bit about, about like the uh, the extent of the uh, the conflict. Uh, it killed between 1,191 to like 1,300 Lebanese people and around 165 Israelis. It severely damaged Lebanese civil infrastructure. It just displaced almost a million people in Lebanon. Um, and also almost half a million people in Israel. So, I mean, lots of destruction to cities and developing areas that set, set back its civil infrastructure a long way. And then that's the major, like, conflict, thank God, slash war. Um, some more recent events. Um, 2008, uh, Hezbollah and Amal forces, um, they, uh, this was sparked by some government declarations that, like, some of Hezbollah's communications was illegal and stuff. So these forces, they seized western Beirut, and they led to a, um, a 2008 conflict. The government, of course, denounced the violence as a coup attempt. Over 62 people died in the resulting clashes. Um, and the whole conflict lasted less than a month. It was all resolved in May, but it's still a significant conflict. When you have a coup attempt, kind of like that, um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, that mm. uh, act like you blame someone for something. That, scapegoat? Yeah, that kind of like scapegoatism. Um, so in 2012, of course, the, civil, the Syrian civil war was in full swing and it threatened to spill over into Lebanon. Um, and that caused even more incidents of like sectarian violence. You had armed clashes between the Sunnis, the Alawites, Alawites, um, those, those Alawites. Alawites, as we would say in America. Uh, those are in Tripoli. Um, and then as of 2013, and I'm sure there are more now, in 2013 there were almost 700,000 Syrian refugees in Lebanon. Um, and as those refugees' numbers increases, um, there are different like party movements and, and freedom movements that fear that um, the whole like sectarian like balance of political system there is being undermined because you have more refugees coming in. And it's already a delicate balance already. That kind of is the end of. Yeah, my history of Lebanon, because that takes us right up to current events. That's the thing, is, like, this was a hard episode, because it is the most detailed history for the smallest country. Oh, it's the country's tiny. 
but there's so many different like the history factions. of Pearland area yeah out of this world yeah the hint the history density is, is incredible um, but that's gonna take us into our first break because I'm a little yeah you need parched. to get some drinks yep um, I will do the fog corn when we get back oh yeah um, and then so you can you can rest your chops a little bit all right here's to my chops folks see you in a little bit Welcome back. <laughs> now, as is tradition, we're going to kick things back off with a trip to Kiki in the flag corner. It's my favorite segment. Kiki, stop being in New Zealand for one second. I'm drawing my head. Is <laughs> stop. I got a mouthful of milk, died. Anyway, American Kiki's back. Well, Flood Corner is my favorite segment. Um, so, excuse me for one second, because I wasn't ready to record. It's fine. It's you, good. You I, chose this path. I chewed through it. <laughs> the flag of Lebanon, uh, it looks like it's red, white, and green. And it has red and white stripes on the top and bottom of the flag with a broad white stripe in the middle. And in the very center is a featured green cedar tree do we know why it's a cedar tree brad i believe there's because a... the cedar is the symbol of holiness eternity and peace and it comes up in the bible a lot uh, the cedar of lebanon is actually mentioned 77 times in the bible um the righteous shall flourish like a palm tree he shall grow like a cedar in lebanon um, the trees of the Lord are well watered. The cedars of Lebanon he has planted. So those are two different verses I just quoted. Um, I'm sure you didn't know this, Brad, but I am a biblical scholar. I didn't know it, but now that I know, it all makes sense. I am kidding, but I'm glad you think that I am that good. I guess your knowledge just grows like a cedar in Lebanon, Kiki. Good one. So what's the red and the white mean? So the white it symbolizes the snow on the top of Mount Lebanon, which is pretty beast. Actually, an etymology thing that we didn't get to in the snapshot is that Lebanon means uh, whiteness. White yeah, like the white, the white caps of Mount Lebanon. Yes. So that's what it actually means. So that's that's what the white and the flag symbolizes, because those mountainous regions. And then the two red stripes refer to the Lebanese bloodshed. Um, yeah, to preserve. Dead. No, there's, the milk no there, there's a fly that went into it, and I was trying to save him. <laughs> um, the two red stripes refer, number one, to my struggle against flies going into my candy, but actually mostly to the Lebanese bloodshed to preserve the country against the uh, invasions. Way not to undercut. It's very, very sincere. Yeah, that was pretty bad of me. Um, I see here in your notes that you wrote um, about something about Antoine de Saint-Exupéry. Yeah, he loved cedars. He had visited Lebanon in 1935, and he wrote in his uh, work, Citadel, The peace is a long-growing tree we need as the cedar to rock its unity. He wrote my favorite book, The Little Prince. Did he really? Yeah. That's I was, um, yeah, that's cool. I actually, my sister read that. She was a French scholar for a long time. Yeah, it came up. So, uh... And um, I definitely recommend looking up that preliminary sketch of the flag. Yeah, it's really, really interesting. The coat of arms is just a flag on, like, an, on a coat of arms shape. Yeah, it's like a, just, yeah, on a so herald super shield. super original Lebanon. Um, they've had tons of flags throughout the years, like the French version yeah. when they were part of France. Mm -hmm. um, when they have a... 
<laughs> Sorry, I just saw that, that flag again. Uh, They've had but actually, like, I've liked this flag a lot. Um, special shout out to my cousin Caitlin um, because one time we went to a bar trivia night and the theme was flags. And Lebanon came up and I was a little confused at the time. It was back when I was young. I was stupid. I'm like, is this Belize, which also features a tree on it? It does. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, it does. And uh, she's like, no, it's Lebanon. That is a cedar tree. And I was like, uh, okay, Caitlin, I guess I'll trust you. And she was totally right. Have more trust, Kiki. I honestly should trust other people more. That's my biggest flaw as a person. And right now I'm just fact-checking myself. Do you know when sure like someone right. said, like, you got a bee in your bonnet? I'm going to start saying you have a fly in your milk duds. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds dirty. <laughs> okay, I'm not going to say that, anybody. We're <laughs> passing right over the flies in people's milk duds. Um, All right, so that's, that's, the, that's been the flag corner. Uh, definitely check out this flag. I very much enjoyed this one. I know I was a little iffy about Bangladesh last week, but we're right back into the flags that I like. Um, great. That was definitely a segment you could consider your favorite. Um, yep. It's uh, up there. <laughs> so we're not going to have a too, too terribly much to talk about as far as like culture and politics because we did a lot of that interspersed with the political, I mean, with the historical discussion. Um, it just came up, different topics. Um, like some ancillary information, for example, like because there are like 18 officially recognized religious groups in Lebanon, um, each religious group has like its own like family law legislation, like set of religious courts. And so like they have a very, very complicated religious system, mm -hmm. like, like as far as like marriage, divorce, adoption, like succession, like wills, all that kind of stuff. It's, there's 18 variations and imagine like a family like intermarried and stuff. It's like the French civil code tried to like bring it all together. Utterly mm -hmm. failed. Um, that court system in Lebanon. Well, because there are gonna be places that are like under Sharia law. Yeah. Like those Arab. Exactly. Yeah. Arab places, and there's gonna be places that are under Christian or Westernized law because of colonization and stuff like that. I can't imagine any good way to try to like organize that. Yeah, because in in the same country you could have like like tribunals like for for like you said for Sharia law. You can have like Marianite Catholics going before like the Vatican, like actual like rota court in the Vatican. You can have. Um, God, there's just so much going on. Um, uh, and also with that, um, that religious diversity, um, just some facts in there. Um, uh, so Islam is like 54%. All the Islam set, Islamic sects. All the Islams. Uh, all the Islams. Um, but within, of course, there's the Sunni sect. There's the Shia or Shiite. Um, there's the Druze people. Um, and then with the... Christianity, you have Marianite Catholics, Greek Orthodox, uh, Melkite Catholics, 1% Protestant, 5% other Christians, uh, Druze, I think it's actually apart from the Islam, but I mean, that's its own sect, the substantial part of the population. You have some Baha'i faith, which yeah, we mentioned way, way, way back in. Um, you have like some non-religious people who consider themselves atheist. You have some people who are Jewish. Um, I think... I read that so Lebanon has the highest um, uh, percentage of people who are Christian in the entirety of the United of the uh, almost the United States, the entirety <laughs> of the Middle East. Um, so they, they're really a standout country from the rest of the Middle East, for better or for worse. Mm -hmm. Like another random thing is like they're the only country in the Middle East not to feature a desert, not any desert whatsoever. Oh I mean, really? They're so, so, so small, they're based on the coast. Yeah. But like that's the thing I would have thought like there's at least some desert in there. So there's no desert. 
Um, the majority, uh, the highest Christian population of any other uh, Middle Eastern country. Um, yeah, just they're kind of a standout in that way, um, which makes them really interesting. Do you have some stuff to talk to you? Let's say, um, as a person who listens to travel podcasts and dreams of a day where one where I could eventually afford to go to the places I dream of. That's a dream. Um, Lebanon is one of the safest places to travel in the Middle East. Uh, people are pretty oh, cool. put off by it being in the Middle East at all, at least like Western travelers are. Um, but especially like the capital of Beirut, it's not too bad. Um, and like if you are a white traveler from America, or even any kind of Western traveler, you're probably going to be okay there. Um, it has a pretty low crime rate, and the lowest number of it, like this is Islam extremist, but I think like ISIS is currently unlikely to be attacking in Lebanon. Okay, good. So those are the that things about that that are kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, I know that Janice Ian from Mean Girls is of Lebanese heritage. Who is she? Is she Gretchen Wieners? No. Janice Ian is um, Oh, not the, a- not the actress's name, but the character's name. Oh. Yeah, it's the character's name because the character is Lebanese. Uh that's a fun joke that I tried to make, but uh, Brad ruined it, as usual. Oh, wait, is she really? And the joke is even funnier because she really is? Or is she not and you're just making a joke? The joke is that, so she I is... Get, I get it. That she's joke because she's a lesbian. No, so she's so not really, she, but she is about. Lebanese, and so one has to speculate that at one time she told Regina George that she's Lebanese, and she heard it as lesbian. Because she's stupid. And that's when she started, George. yeah, and that's when she started the rumor that she's a lesbian. Wow. That complex interplay of humor just went over my head. Yeah, well... Well, I mean, it's hard to compete with you. You're both a biblical scholar and a mean girl scholar, so... I mean, one and the same, though. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was heretical. Okay. My apologies. Like, also, like, during your timeline, I I realized I know a little bit more about Lebanon than I thought, um, only because of, like, growing up in the church. Um... And like that, like Lebanon does come up quite a bit in the, in the Bible, in the, in the book, um, the good book. Well, I wouldn't call it. I wouldn't go that far. Just kidding. <laughs> um, you can't give it reverence and then shoot it down the next. <laughs> you're right. I can't. I can't. I gotta follow through on what. Like, I can't just be a contrarian. Um, but there's like a lot of like familiar things. It reminds me of like my church choir days, and we talk about stuff in Lebanon. And like as someone also who has like spent a lot of time learning the history of Rome. Um, and like the Greeks, the Ptolemies, and everything in this area, like yeah, it's there's a lot of stuff I'm familiar with. I just didn't know that it was in this modern border. So that was cool. Yeah, I think it's cool. The first uh, country on the Mediterranean, which I mean, oh, for of the podcast of the podcast, and it wasn't the first one of all time, but yeah, on the podcast, you know, it wasn't. Um, um, I mean, really, like some countries go through that, but yes. in terms of like very high conflict region or area in general this is such a cool thing to see that there's like, like they have their own problems they're not as involved as like in the american war with iraq war quote-unquote war on terrorism stuff like that yeah um i'm a little concerned but when the country first popped up on as you know on our coming up that is okay it's really close to yemen i don't want overlap with like I want to do mm-hmm. lot different kinds of countries before we get back into the same regions. Oh, but no, Lebanon was extremely diverse in terms of history and mm-hmm. difference. Like you have some Mediterranean culture, you have the, the all the religious tensions. It's really fascinating. Um, in fact, because of the Lebanese diaspora, um, there's Lebanese people all around the world. Um, 
an interesting fact is that the highest concentration of people from Lebanon outside of the country is in Brazil. There's around 6 million people of Lebanese descent in Brazil. I would live in Brazil if I was a Lebanese uh, and then the, refugee. Uh, the countries that, are, that have the next highest concentrations after Brazil are like Argentina, Mexico, Colombia, Ecuador. Um, yeah, large Lebanese mm-hmm. populations move to Latin America, which I think is fascinating. That is cool. I wonder why there's that specific connection. I don't know. Of it just how it is, who has space refugees. Go where your yep. family is, etc. Um, what else? Uh, did, did you know, Kiki, that since 1945, it's illegal to hoist a foreign flag in Lebanon? Can't, I didn't know that. Can't do it. Against the rules. I guess, like, when you're coming out of being colonized, you're like, fuck it. Our flag only. <laughs> um, yep, that's... I'm getting... Scraping the bottom of the barrel like as far where as I was, No, it's not... I, like, Lebanese food is something that comes up a lot. Really? I know where I'm from in Colorado... Um, there's like a restaurant I used to pass called like the Beirut Grill. Oh, cool. Something like that. Um, and it's very much, it's somewhat other Mediterranean cuisines. Or like falafel, baba ganoush, um, um, hummus, stuff like that is very common in Lebanese cuisine. So, similar. Uh, sounds actually really good right now. I'm kind of hungry. So, um, and I've been like downing these milk duds and these filled Twizzlers this whole podcast. I'm still So, hungry. something that you have here in your notes about Lebanese cuisine is that it's like a Levantine style of cooking. Oh, yeah. And what I didn't talk about was what the term Levant means. And that's important because when, like, Obama calls it ISIL instead of ISIS. Yeah. So, I mean, it's bad that we know about it because it's in the ISIL Yeah, that's a a negative association because it's a much older word than that. Yeah, because, so, here I have here, um, uh, the term, the Levant, entered English from 15th century from French, and derives from the Italian word levante, meaning rising, implying that like this is the land of the rising sun in the oh, east. Oh, like even like leavened bread. Yeah. 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 Um, and it's a it's a historical geographical term talking about a large area in the eastern Mediterranean, encompassing like uh, ancient Phoenicia, okay, like Lebanon, uh, Syria, um, Greece, Anatolia, Syria, Palestine, even parts of Egypt. Um, so like the Levant states or the Levant talked about this region um, also talks about like Levant, Levantine cuisine uh, Christians of the Levant um, stuff like that so it's good to have that term in our lexicon because mm-hmm. it's well it's also it seems like a scary word until you know what it means exactly and just refers to the region yeah um, Lebanon in the 1960s because it had just come out of like conflicts and stuff and it was on the assert- it was on the ascendancy mm-hmm. Had remained neutral in some regional stuff. They were called the Switzerland of the East because of their financial soundness and their diversity. Cool. So, the Switzerland of the Middle East. So, the Switzerland of the East? They're the Paris of the Middle East? What country are they not? All the other 195. Yep. <laughs> and Paris isn't a country, so. It might as well be. That's not false. All right. Let's keep things moving. All right. Um, so, Kiki. We've done all the uh, the research. We've got in-depth discussion. Any changes to your familiarity ratings? I'm going to take myself to a fucking three. Holy shit. Because I knew more than I thought I thought. I thought I knew. Yeah. Three's low, actually. You can go to four. I mean... Yeah. You know what? I will. I'll take that four. You're so brave. Um, And I really like the way you did your history. I like that it was more narrative. And there were some characters and some groups that like came up time and time again that are still relevant players in the game today. I tried better. Um, it's cool that you actually tried on this podcast. I know that in the past you don't try at all. No, I just sit here and make 
hilarious comments. Mm-hmm. That's what I did today. <laughs> I um, put in such little effort, but I feel like I got so much out of it. So, yeah. Two or four. What about you? Resounding four. I'm going to go to uh, a five. I feel, <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes we talk about a country... We broach the topics of their history, and like there's so much depth we didn't know about, so we say, okay, we can't go too high because there's so much depth here. I feel like because the history lends itself to like bringing up the major conflicts with the sex and <laughs> shut up, with the different sectarian religions and the, like the ge- geography and stuff, I feel like any big discussion about Lebanon I could take part in because all the major events. We went over mm-hmm. all the major conflicts are there. It's so so much of the conflict is recent. Yeah, and like what's happened in the past twenty years, because like I, I mean it's it's something that's in the news, but I've always just kind of brushed over. And knowing more about what's happening, what led up to these events, and why it is the way it is, and what effects it's been having, so valuable. I feel like it's hard to get north of a five for the ratings. I feel like if I like sought out some cuisine, if I sought out some people, if I sought out more about it. Do you want to have falafel night? Let's do it. I feel like if I sought more out and I learned more about it, I could get north of a five for Lebanon. Okay. I think it's really neat, and I think I learned a lot. After falafel night, to a six. Wow. Eating the food is the part of the experience. It's cultural, cultural experience. And it's, I wonder if we know some Lebanese people. We might with that with the diaspora and. There's probably some you Lebanese do people. know someone. We talked about this. You should just reach out. Yeah, I don't even know. Where they are, where the magic's of Facebook. Yeah, be, that's yeah. um, it's called being a person in uh, the twenty first century. Don't get a fly in your milk duds. Okay. Oh. Um, <laughs> so that, conclu- <laughs> that concludes our discussion on Lebanon. Um, Kiki, let's jump right into current events. Or do you want me to take a little thing you know, so you can pull up your books? Um, it takes me literally one second to pull up my books. So right. Right, what I'm listening to currently is called "The Girl Who Escaped ISIS." This is my story. Called by Farida Kala. I'm not saying it was my story. It's this girl's story. It's part of the title. Yeah. Um, t- I got it. Kind of a downer so far. Right, right. Um, because at this point she is still captured by ISIS. She has not yet escaped. Uh, and so, but that's that's interesting. I think it came out like in 2016. Um, maybe maybe 2015. I'm not sure. Uh, so learning a little bit more about uh, Yadi. As she's Yazidi. So once I started reading this book, I did a little bit more research about what uh, being Yazidi means. It's a religion in like northern Iraq, Kurdistan, those kind of areas. Um, and this is not a religious podcast, so we're not going to go into that now unless you guys want to hear about it, and then I can talk about it more. But it's mostly just, in the context of the book, these, these women, Yazidi women and Yazidi people, have been particularly shot on by ISIS. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's, it's a hard read, but so far it's it's... Very interesting to listen to. Very and it sounds like important for our discussion today. Yeah, and it's yeah, important relevant. to know what's happening in these areas um, to religious minorities um, because the same thing. Like this woman was sold into a sex sex trade, sex slavery. Christian women are the same. Yep. Same things happening to Christian women. Um, same thing happening to uh, other religions in the area. I did finish a man called Uva, which I started talking about last week. Yeah, guys, Brad, ask me how much I recommend this book. How much you recommend this book? I a thousand recommend this book. A thousand, huh? Wow. I like I don't. It's just a feel good novel. Well, it seems like a diminishment, like, but it's like it was like great novels can make you feel good. And that's the thing, like it. I wasn't reading it to learn anything like I normally do with my my nonfiction books. Okay. It was just reading a story that 
was like reading one long hug because at first you're like oh great cool it's another book about an old man but then like it's like it's like shrek the layers get peeled away like an onion (laughs) yeah and like at the end it was just like it was just so so good um, I'm not going to spoil it for anybody. Oops, oops. I also read it. That was by Frederick Bachman, Bachman, um, the Swedish author who I was talking about. I also read his novella called And Every Morning the Walk Home Gets Longer, which was only like an hour read. It was very yeah. short. Um, and if you have anybody in your life who has Alzheimer's, oh yeah. Oh, once I realized what was happening in the book, it's hard. Um, I was walking my dog, and I just started like crying. And I was, like, I was like, Gertie, I can't. I can't do this anymore. Oh. I actually had to take the. I had to turn the book off, and I, I had to like take a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, what else did I read? I finished another book today. It was called "You Will Not Have My Hate." Again, it was pretty short, and it was about uh, a man who had lost his wife in the 2015 Paris terrorist attacks. Also, another ISIS thing. It kind of happened by accident that I'm reading all these ISIS books, and it was just this man and and his wife was at the concert, one of the concert halls. And she died, and he had a baby, um, and he wrote a very famous Facebook post about it. So he got a lot of attention, and he started writing a book around the same time, just to describe what it was, what he was feeling. So that was cool. Another book I just started is called Executing Grace. It's a nonfiction. Um, How the death penalty killed Jesus and why it's killing us. It's by Shane Claiborne. Again, I really am in the first chapter, so I don't yeah. really know what it's going to be like. I'm not sure. <laughs> like I was a little put off by like the subheading with like Jesus. Yeah. But I'm really interested in what people think about the death penalty, so... Interesting. And as, like, a future policymaker, I think it's something that's good to know. It's a very diverse canon you're reading right now. Yep. I, um, you know, now that I have, like, a walk to school... Yeah, uh, yeah I, I love the, the the spaces between, like, school functions and classes. Yeah. Way to put it and, like, it's the time I have for myself. What about you? What's new for you? So, um, I'm also consuming some cool media, like... Like the TV show, like Sharp Objects. I, re- I finished oh, the book at work. Um, the penultimate episode. The penultimate episode, and yeah. I finished the book. So, like, um, it was riveting, and I, I really enjoyed the story and the twists and turns. I'm not going to really get into it, though, because yeah. of spoilers. Yeah. Um, we'll talk about that off air. Yeah. And then, I, of course, I'm watching uh, Hard Knocks on HBO, which is the football training camp kind of documentary every year. Oh, super interesting. I, I bet. I, I like it because it doesn't focus on football. It focuses on like, the human interest stories. That's, yeah, that's better. Um, I was being a, a snide, Susan. Yeah, like like the head coach of the – calls the Cleveland Browns this season, and the head coach, like his mother and his brother, like passed away like in the same like week or something before training camp started. And, like, the outpouring of support from, like, the team and stuff and, like, seeing him, like, be really, like – emotional and human and then tr- then like turn around and be like this really big dick who's yelling at grown men to like be professionals it's mm-hmm. very it's it's really very human interest i like it a lot um of course what i maybe want to talk about is a funny anecdote so there's a podcast I listen to called a thousand and one classic short stories um i'm nodding you, listeners can't see it happening but i she's am. nodding enthusiastically even um so it's got a nice voiced um like elderly gentlemen who reads the stories and they pick like classic short stories like some Sherlock Holmes, some Jack London. It just depends. Just just a grab bag of famous short stories. And there's a two parter that I downloaded and was gonna listen to when I worked out like t- two nights ago. So it's around seven PM and I'm walking to the gym and part it's it's, it's the, the short story in question is HP Lovecraft's The Dunwich Horror. And I'm like, I have never listened to or read a love HP Lovecraft story. I know they're like very science fiction. I'm going to start it. 
So I walk to the gym in like the twilight of the day. And, like it's like atmospheric gothic horror. Okay, this is cool. <laughs> I'm good with this. Yeah, it's it, 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 it's weird to work out to like sci-fi short stories. I know. Anyway, I'm working out. I'm running. I'm rowing. Easy to zone out to. I'm doing all that kind of stuff. Brad forgot that it gets dark at night time, and they get, <laughs> and short stories of this nature get scarier at the end. So I walk home <laughs> to what most people consider the scariest H.P. Lovecraft short story. <laughs> I walk home by myself, like a twenty-minute walk, and I was very. I called my girlfriend. I had to stop it and call her because I was very scared. <laughs> it was very creepy because it's like there's like interdimensional like summoning demons and stuff and like yike and there's like it's really really creepy. Yeah, I I can't do scary at all. Yeah, um, I did not think it through and that was very funny that I yep, had that to abandon like a, a fortunate mistake because it really puts you in the mood but not really. Yeah, um, I spook very easily so it's. Like, I listen to true crime. Yeah. Uh, dedicated listeners will know this. And, like, there'll be times at night where I'm like, well, they're describing, I'm listening to a true crime podcast and they're talking about how he breaks in through windows at night. And I'm like, I don't live need that. You don't on need the that. ground floor of an apartment. My roommate is also a woman. My dog is a very sweet girl. Yeah. Not a defense dog. Uh, so, yeah, I would be gone. Yeah, that's, that's just that's scary. If you're a listener, no, I was just kidding about being on the ground floor of an apartment. You never need to find me. That was, yeah, that was all hypothetical. Um, yeah, so that's what's going on with us. I was going to say, um, I also, like, in my HBO, what time are we at? We're, we're not great on time, but we're okay on time. But um, I finally, like, have enjoyed the full benefits of my HBO prescription. You go, Kiki. So I watched all of Sex in the City. All of it. This took, like, three weeks. <laughs> and I really, <laughs> genuinely hate it. But I could not stop myself. It's like, you hate it, but... Is it still in the realm of, like, guilty pleasure, or just, like, why am I doing this? I guess it's, like, a guilty pleasure, because did I, you put I it love to criticize it. Put away my other stuff? No, did you, like, put it on and, like, do other stuff just to have it on? Or did you actually sit down and no, watch it? No, I watched it. it. Oh, shaky. Yeah, <laughs> and I was just like, how is this so popular? How is everyone, every woman who's seen it, it's like, well, I'm a Samantha. I'm like, well, I'm a Charlotte. Um, because every character is so one-dimensional. If one woman was any one person... Everybody would be so boring. Okay, well, we discussed this before outside the podcast. People gravitate towards comfortable fluff, of which I consider things like unpopular opinion. I consider the it's office like watching, digestible yeah, fluff. You're right. Um, it's like watching a a romance novel. Like you know, it's not going to have any huge impact. No. You're just watching it because you can enjoy it. You can relate to some things, but it doesn't super. And that's like watching The Office too. You can watch it because it's easy to watch. You can enjoy it. You can participate in those cultural references. But that's my HBO story of the week. All right. Let's take a brief aside. Getting all our notes set for next episode. All right. So um, thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of The World As We Know It. Kinky, you something to say? I was going to ask you if you're going to let me do my plugs. Oh, shit. Kiki. The plugs. Quick. The plugs. Um, so if you're interested in our podcast, uh, follow us on Twitter at, at the World Podcast. You can also find our Facebook page to get updates about our latest episodes. Um, currently, you still have to download them off of uh, iTunes. But one day, when we are a monetized podcast, we will afford a better streaming service. Yeah, when Fiji Water picks us up. Yep. Once Fiji Water <laughs> pulls through, uh, we will have a streaming service that has automatic uploads. But thank you for being with us until this point. We have no new reviews. 
so yeah, just follow, follow us on Twitter. And um, don't we always follow back, Kiki? We always follow back. So if We're you're so looking courteous. for a new follower, you mean uh, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. In terms of following on Twitter. <laughs> Uh, so that's all I had to say. <laughs> Why don't you tune in next week for another episode of The World As We Know It and for our country. It's Angola. Angola. And, and until then, yellow, yellow bye. bye.